This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So uh, this Sunday we're going to run into Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, but I'm going to just read one verse from chapter 6, and then chapter 8, it's a long uh, uh, chapter, so bear with me. So the wall, it's what we've been talking about, was completed on the 25th day of the 6th month in 52 days, 144 years without a wall, 52 days they got it done. Then it says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their town, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law uh, of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. I just want to pause there and just realize how lucky you are just to get me for 45 minutes. Uh, uh, From uh, daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. By the way, there are others who can understand are all at New Day. I'm assuming that's just not a separate category, men and women and and people that could understand. All our uh, youth are at New Day. I hear they've had a great time and also... I think a lot of our 20s have gone and served them. So those are the others who could understand. They're all, I guess, not with us this week. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. We will preach from the stage uh, one day in this church. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. And the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8. They read from the book of the law, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping. I was listening to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some those to have nothing prepared. This day is is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. When all the people went away to drink, to share their food and to celebrate with great joy because they had understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day, of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law that which Moses had commanded through, uh, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. 
and they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go into the whole country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtle and palms and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on, on, the, on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the, the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first to the day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, which celebrated the festival for seventh day. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulations, there was an assembly. Lord Jesus, we just pray as we look through this chapter of Nehemiah, this revival chapter, this a whole nation gathered to hear your word. I pray that you'd speak to us. Lord, I pray that you'd get uh, settled in our spirit what is totally at the centre of what you're trying to do with us. I pray that you'd help us to be a Jesus-centred, gospel-centred church. I pray that we'd uh, uh, respond to your truth as these people have done with uh, repentance, with faith, with walking with you, with eating and sharing lives together. So Lord, I pray, speak to us, instruct us, just as Ezra did uh, all those uh, uh, thousands of years ago. Lord, I pray that you'd instruct us from your word this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So I guess the question I want to ask you is, uh, what are your core values? Everybody has core values. I guess if you work in business, you probably have a core, you have a a vision statement, or you may have some core values. Uh, And every organization, every family, every individual will have some core values. Maybe you're good at articulating them, maybe you know what your core values are, or maybe you're not. But everybody has those core values, those things that they think, I really need to truly nurture onto this. These things that when you were a little kid, if you transgressed, your parents would definitely discipline you. So I know in Naomi's family that if she, <clears throat> if she told a lie, her parents would be most most severe with her, because actually honesty was a core value. And there's, there's different core values. There's things that you say, no, this is the really important thing. This is the thing that we need to keep at the center. This is the non-negotiable. I remember uh, a very famous uh, Christian celebrity church leader, leads a church of 25,000. I happened to be in his home. It's a long story. You can ask me afterwards how I managed to blag my way in. But I was in, my, in his home with about 15 church leaders and he chatted to me and said, what are you doing? And at that time I was planting a church in Manchester. Uh, this guy's called Bill Hybels, leads a uh, church in Chicago. And he, um, we were talking about the type of church we were hoping to plant Naomi and I. And he, uh, I'm going to illustrate with Paul, he, he took his index finger, his Dutch, American Dutch, he took his index finger and he said, it's about those things you take a bullet for. I really stuck in my mind. You know, there's so many things about life and family and church, but he says it's about those things you take a bullet for. What are the core values that you say, these are non-negotiable? Martin uh, Luther King, uh, uh, American civil rights campaigner, says, if a man hasn't found the thing he's prepared to die for, he's not worth living. Life's not worth living. And we all have those core values. But I think it's interesting that we probably don't think about them very much. If you think about family or political parties or, um, or the city of London or even church, you say, well, what are the core values? I would say in Cheltenham, the core value of most families, 
Well, you can, anybody want to say, what would you say? Most families are obsessed with this in Cheltenham. You can play at this point, we're small enough. Education. I would totally, that would have been the one I would say. Everybody is obsessed with education. Which school are you going to get in? I'm a governor of a school. I've heard appeals. And it, the tragedy, the tears of people didn't get the school that they wanted to go to and they have to go to somewhere else. Education is like the non-negotiable. You know, we'll, we'll put, and, and I'm not saying that education is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong, I'm a teacher. But, you know, the education, what else are the core values think? This, this is important to us. Comfortable. Being comfortable, nice house, nice garden, nice, nice holidays, thank you. You know, the, it is being comfortable, having enough money to be comfortable. That's like the kids. They might not articulate it that way. They might say, oh, education is about their kids and comfort's about, you know, well, I've worked hard and I need to rest. And, and again, it's not wrong to have a decent house with, with, with comfortable things. That's, we're not, not saying that. But actually, it's interesting what the core values. I mean, I find dis, dis, depressing about political parties. They should have some core values that really matter to them. Some things that they're saying, look, this really matters. But actually, I, you know, I don't want to increase cynicism about politicians, but it seems really their core value is they just want to get elected. We'll say what you want us to say, so you'll vote for us. The business uh, community, when the city of London crashed, what the shock was that banking services were supposed to provide uh, finance for investments so that businesses could grow and people could uh, buy property and, and, and service the economy. But actually the whole core values had got t- changed and it was all about something else. It was all about bigger bankers' bonuses and shareholder profit. And again, I'm not saying shareholder profit's wrong. We want, you know, you need to make profits in a company. But the thing had got out of shape. And I think even in churches, I, there's time when I felt like uh, I, the thing that you hear from everybody, and I still have to work through this, if you've heard me preach at all, the thing you hear from everyone is, you've got to have a big church. You're validated by having a big church. If you're a big church leader, you're, a, you're this person. But if you're a small church leader, you're this kind of person. And, and, and the, the whole thing, can, and I've used these terms before, can all be about attendance and buildings and cash. And somehow the core values can get lost. Somehow we lose what it's really, really about. And it, what is wonderful about this chapter in Nehemiah, and that was a long intro, I'm sorry, but what was int- uh, what's interesting about this chapter in Nehemiah is that actually they get to core values. They get to say, this is what we're really about. And you can read Nehemiah for six chapters and think that their core value was about building the wall. That's what I want to do. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the uh, most powerful man in the world and he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed and he thinks, right, we're going to rebuild these walls. But the question is, what is he going to do when it's all finished? Is that really what he's about? I mean, uh, in a different context altogether, uh, George Michael said, what's a boy going to do when all his dreams come true? Because his core value is, I just want to be wealthy and famous. And he got himself in all sorts of stuff, did George Michael. But here, Nehemiah's showing us that actually building the wall is not it. There's something more fundamental than that. And we see that here. It says, all the people came together as one. You could, there's a whole sermon on that. But, you know, they came together. 
It's not they came together as a load of individuals. They came together as, as community. They came together with togetherness. They came together as family. They came together as one. There was probably about 40,000 in Jerusalem at that time. So as low a population as Jerusalem had had in, in centuries because of the number of exiles that had been taken away. About 40,000 people. And they came together and they said, this is what we want. They told Ezra, who'd arrived in um, Jerusalem about 10 years before uh, Nehemiah, who was... Uh, he was a scribe, a teacher of the law. They said, bring out the book. Can you imagine 40,000 people, football season started yesterday, 40,000 people chanting, bring out the book. <laughs> you imagine that? It's like, you know, they the come out, Jose Mourinho comes out, bring out the trophy. But this is 40,000 people outside, uh, the, in the court outside Jerusalem saying, we want to hear the Bible. In fact, um, they, they, where they met is interesting. If you just uh, take a little map, it should be there. There should be one there. Whoop, no, 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 no. Let's yeah, jump that and we'll come back to that. Let's go, go up to the little map, can you? Nope, one more. That one. If you're interested, as a map of Jerusalem. It's not a brilliant, uh, a brilliant map. But basically, I've enlarged where they were. They met in this place called the Watergate at... Uh, a gap in the walls, it's a gate in the walls, and the gate led straight into Solomon's temple. Um, where Solomon's temple has been, Solomon's temple had been destroyed, Zerubbabel about 70 years previously had rebuilt it, it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple, but they almost like, they naturally went to the centre of the community, they naturally went to the centre of Jerusalem, to the kind of, they believe that the the, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of the world and they said right standing at the center of the world what are our core values and it's uh, and it's interesting that he said that uh, Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses you can go back to the other one the the, the lead slide go back one I need a clicker don't I okay let me just give you the the law of Moses wasn't in case you're thinking wasn't the ten commandments it's the first five books of the bible so it's those it's Genesis Exodus Viticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So those first five books. What's the story of that? Well, you could, you could start earlier, but it's about a, a, a glorious garden first, and it's about a, 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 a turning away from God, a fall from sin. It's about how God's plan to take Abraham and call him and say, I'm going to give you this brilliant promised land. I'm going to give you a land and make it yours, and I'm going to reestablish Eden, as it were, that, that place where God dwells through you, the people. But what happened was... They found themselves, 400 years later, in slavery in Egypt. They found themselves as slaves in Egypt. Uh, Joseph had gone there, fed a nation, and then what happens is they find themselves as as slaves in Egypt. says a pharaoh who did not know Joseph arose and they enslaved the people. And you've seen the Prince of Egypt if you've got uh, Disney Channel. Uh, And, you know, that that sense of Moses coming, taken into the... uh, I mustn't preach the whole thing. Taken into the... uh, uh, um, palace, brought up as a prince of Egypt, escapes, goes away, and then he comes back and he says to um, to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then there's, you know the story, ten plagues, and the final plague is judgment on Egypt. And what happens is the the, the Israelites were to to take a, a, a lamb and to kill the lamb and to put its blood on the doorposts and the lentil of their house. And when the, when the angel of death came to take the firstborn in that house, they would see the blood 
it would see the blood and be unable to enter. And that's called the Passover, and the lamb was slain. And then what happens is they release and they go out from, uh, from Egypt and they cross, through the, they cross through the Red Sea. In other words, there's a passing through the sea. It's almost as like a, a little baptism. They pass through the sea and come out on the other side into the wilderness. And then the, the, the remainder of the books after Exodus, uh, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are all about how should this community live. And they're wandering around for 40 years. I've got an echo. I was going to move this way. Uh, they're wandering around for 40 years living in a tent. And all the time, God's saying, this is what you're going to be like. And so, as, so Ezra reads that big story. Familiar with that? Some of you won't be, some of you will. But Ezra reads that big, big story. And the people listened attentively. And what was at the center of that big story was the, the God, and we say, that, say it in, in the worship, God who breaks chains, a God who brings freedom, a God who, who, who provides a way for people to be, to be, to be uh, saved, who brings them into a land of promise, who, who's as good as his word, who fulfills all his promises. It, it, it wasn't like when it's the law of Moses, it's all about these commandments, about like, no, God has caught you up in a big story. And I think that the, when they heard that, there was a sense of, wow, this is amazing. What an amazing story. But it's interesting, if you, uh, if you took, the, took a Gospel of John and you did what's called a wordle of it, you know what, how a wordle works. It basically counts the number of words and makes them bigger in the little diagram. Sorry, this is another great shape, I didn't make it. Uh, makes uh, the words bigger. So what is it? Obviously, two words here that are right at the center of John's gospel. You can tell them. <laughs> Everyone's, yeah, okay. Jesus and Father, yeah? Right at the center of John's gospel was, was Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father. Right at the center of Moses' story was the Lamb that was slain and the God who's faithful. And it's interesting that what I think I want to say this morning, and I might split it into two sermons, which would save me a lot of preparation and save you some time, is that we want to say that actually what is at the core values of this church? What's right at the centre of what we do? We want to say that actually Jesus, the Father, and the Son and the, uh, are at the centre. Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit are at the centre of what... We do, but also that what, what God has done in Jesus, the gospel, the good news of how he set us free is at the center. Do you, do you want to jump two on to those that other led one? Go, go one more. Yeah, so what's the big story that we believe? It's a similar one. Jesus, God planted a garden, walked with the people in the garden. They sinned, they walked away from him, and they ended up slaves to sin. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that doesn't mean uh, that just those people who are addicted. It means all of us, unless you're set free, are naturally going to just do what God doesn't like. You're going to do destructive behavior. You're going to be a slave to sin. Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we're enslaved. And then what? Jesus, the Passover lamb, is slain. His blood saves us. His blood's on your life. And I know that seems really old-fashioned and, uh, and, and archaic, but actually what it means is that, that, that his blood has been shed so death can't get to you, 
So destruction can't get to you. So, so that you're safe and secure. He's died on a cross to set us free. Next one. Interestingly, that there's a baptism. Jesus said to, to the uh, disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? What he meant was, he was going to die. He was going to pass through, not the waters, but he was going to pass through death and come out the other side, just as the children of Israel had passed through the, 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 the Red Sea and come out on the other side. And then it finishes, it finishes perhaps the gospel of Jesus, if we're doing it this way, it finishes with this idea that we live in earthly tents. John, uh, sorry, Paul in Corinthians talks about as we live in earthly tents, that we, we're, we're not here permanently. This isn't our home, this isn't our priority, that we live in earthly tents, that our bodies are tents that are temporary. I'm going to go, and just a year ago I was on holiday and I, my, I was ringing my mum she, after she had a heart attack, thinking she, she's about to die. And she died just at the end of the summer last year. And we know that our bodies are temporary. And that's kind of a story, but actually it means that our spirits go on with God. So, so we've got those things. But, but actually we want to say that that gospel, you could look at it in loads of different ways, wants to be at the centre. Um, Thomas Jefferson, American puller... Uh, was, he, was he a president, Thomas Jefferson? I think he was American president, wasn't he? It's definitely a... Come on, Harold. Yeah, American president, good. He, was, he said this about what he is centred on. He said, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. And one of the things that was really important is that as a church, we need to say, there's some things in this church that are non-negotiable. We don't just flow with the tide of the culture. We want to be culturally relevant. We want to understand what's happening in the world. We don't want to do things that are just awkward and annoying just to put people off. But there's certain things in the, in the, this, in the Jesus story, in the gospel of Jesus, that are non-negotiable. And we want to be centered on those things. And so I want to ask you, um, how are we doing with putting the, putting the gospel, putting the Bible at the center? I saw this tweet um, a few uh, weeks back, just before I went on holiday. It said, the guy called Matt Smethurst said, so many, so many are looking for special revelation from God whilst it sits on their shelves gathering dust. How are we doing? How are we doing by saying God's word the gospel of Jesus is right at the centre. Now, you can have a debate about what really is the centre of a church. You could say, Jesus is the centre of a church, and absolutely, Jesus must be the centre of the church. But actually, the gospel is his story. It's, it's the story about him. It's not that we, we've sidelined that and have something else, that we have other things that we're excited about. I know that, that churches can really easily, and I think it, we can easily do it, can, can be centred on other things. That can be centered on exciting worship. Or they can be centered on, centered on great community. Or they can be centered on, on uh, having kind of healing on the streets. Or uh, one church in Cheltenham I know that was centered on dreams. And dream fulfillment. And we can have all those things and I'm not saying that, they're, they're, then, that there's no place for them. But actually the ultimate center of what we've got is, is to be about Jesus. We need to be about him. I, I was thinking this morning about this and think it's a bit like the Bible is this window 
And, and, we, and it's almost like, so imagine you, we, we were sun worshippers. I mean, S-U-N, sun worshippers. And we lived in houses with, an, with no windows. It would seem stupid, wouldn't it? Or even to be sun worshippers and live in houses that had windows and never look out. Never look at the sun. And we think, well, what? And actually, I think sometimes with the Bible, we can be in this situation where, where actually we, we never open it. And you can all, I know you all look around and say, no, that's, I know that's not a problem for me. I'm right in there. I'm right in there. I, I'm finding Jesus in the Bible. I'm finding him in the story day after day after day. And sometimes we can, we can say, well, what I want in church is I want some special word from God. I remember a guy uh, in Manchester said to me about the church in Manchester, if you had any prophetic words about the church that you, that you feel to plant, I wish I had my Bible handy, but because I need to punch it at this point, yeah. <laughs> uh, he said, have you had any prophetic words? And I said, well, not really. And he was like, oh, oh dear. You know, how, how, how do you know what to do? And, 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 and I, you know, in true Yorkshire style, I said, what's this about then? Doesn't this give us some idea about what we're trying to do? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not against prophetic words. And you know, sometimes a guy comes with a, or a woman comes with an incredible gifting and you think, oh, will you pick me out? Please pick me out and say something amazing about me. You think, oh yeah, that must be God then. And I know, that, and I've, I'm all for that and I'd love that to be part of what our, our diet in church. It was brilliant at the weekend away when, when Matt Hatch picked out people and said, this and this and this, wasn't it? Amazing. And I'm not against that, but actually, be, behind all that, before all that, you can go into this book day after day after day and God can speak to you. He can speak to you. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that this book is right at the center because he's the window unto him. Yeah, and we, we need to be gospel-centered. Let's, let me give you... I'm going to give you... Um, I'm going to give you some points and then you're going to get the next next week. Okay, so the first thing that happens is they read, the, they read the, the, the law of Moses, this incredible story of God's salvation, and, it's, and the first thing they do is they respond in worship. It says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When you hear truth, you don't remain passive. When you hear real truth, you don't remain passive. It should make you throw your hands in the air and say, God, there's no one like you. You're the great, great God. Or it should make you put your face to the ground and say, God, you're so holy and I'm not. Or God, you're so awesome and I'm in need forgiveness or whatever. But there's a response. We don't put our hands up. I know some of you don't, but we don't put, I don't put my hands up because... Hopefully, that's a style issue. I put my hands up because there's something of me that says, I want to reach to God. I want to respond to him. I want to hold my hands out and say, take hold of me, Daddy. Or I want to say, I surrender. Or whatever, holding your hands up. But you hold your hands up and you say, God, you're the God of the universe. The great God. And worship needs response, people. But it comes... Sorry, thanks, Nate. Worship needs response. Yes, yes. because when you hear how, G- how amazing Jesus is, you should think, whoa, he's wonderful. 
He's so brilliant. When you read about him, you should say, there's no one like you. You're the beautiful one, the amazing one. When you read about how he died on the cross, you should think this is just an incredible story, the unveiling story of God's breaking into the world and setting you free. You should think, whoa, I want to worship. Now, I like Coldplay. And you too. And I've been to concerts where they put the music on loud and they pump it up and you're like, yes! But it's not the same. It can't be the same. There's something about worship. You need to have truth at the heart of your worship. Jesus says to the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman, she said, you Samaritans worship, does anyone know what he says? What you do not know. But we Jews worship what we do know. As a church, worship needs to be based on who we know. We're not just a worshipping community. Yeah, we love it. We want to say it's based on who we know. It's based on who we know. You know, so you can have great worship... And I'm not saying I, I wouldn't like better, you know, rocking worship in this place. I'd love to fill it. Wouldn't it be great? We fill it and, whoa, you know. Sorry, that's just me, Michael. I'm sure you'd think, no, no, really. <laughs> but that we worship what we know. What does Paul says? He says, we had PJ preach about it. He says, here's an altar to an unknown God in Athens. And he says, what you worship... I'm going to make known to you. Worship is based on truth. It's based on gospel truth. It's expressive because the truth is overwhelming. It's emotional because the truth is irresistible, because the grace is compelling. That's why we worship. And and folks, if our worship is passive and sleepy, what does it say? I go to some churches, I know you get these churches where the worship's great, you think, where's the truth? You go to some churches, they preach amazing Bible, and they say, let's stand and sing hymn number 25. And everyone stands, oh, and you think, now that's a style issue partly, and I'm not saying they're, they're not engaged emotionally, but, beyond, but there must be, whether you're quietly singing hymns or, or jumping up and down and have a light show, there's an emotional engagement that truth creates that's beyond style. And guys, we need to fight for that. We need to say it's important. Let me give you one more. No, I'll give you two more. They have three hours, so you, you, you're doing okay. Okay, so the first response to truth, we need to be gospel-centered, Jesus-centered. The first response is worship. We need to be a worshiping community based on truth. Second one is repentance. This is what they said. This day, by the way, if you read about the seventh month in, in Jewish um, calendar, the seventh month is interesting because it starts with what's on the 10th, what's called the Day of Atonement. And then the next day after that is the Festival of Trumpets, which I've not really dug into, but I guess they blew trumpets and said, hello. And, and, then, the, the, and then the last bit, it finishes with the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what we're going to unpick now. Okay, so, so it says this day. It doesn't say the Day of Atonement, but I think it says this day is holy to the Lord. Do not weep, mourn or weep for all the people had been weeping. If you read in Leviticus 16, which maybe that's where they got to in the reading, what they read is that each, each year, once a year, 
The, the high priest would go into. Oh no, it starts off by saying, don't just wander into my presence just willy-nilly. Don't just wander in whenever you fancy. God's a holy God. You can come into my presence, the holy of holies, in the middle of the tent, the tabernacle, once a year. And you can only come, the high priest can only come when he's washed himself and he's reclothed himself and, and he comes with the blood of a sacrifice. And he would come into the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling and, and put the blood before the Lord. He'd splash it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called like the angel's wings on top, the atonement cover, and they'd pour the blood on there and then come out. And it says, because you, your blood, your sins need to be covered by blood. And this needs to happen once a year. And I think what happens is, I don't know really the, the background, but I suspect that what the people realize is, we just have not been doing this. We haven't realized that there's a blood of a sacrifice that makes us clean. There's a blood of a sacrifice that atones or covers up our sin. And the people suddenly realized, oh my word. Even the high priest, the one who's supposed to be most holy, said if he doesn't go in carrying blood, he's going to die. You think, whoa, God, are you bad-tempered or scary? No. They suddenly realize that sin is bad news, destructive, crushing. And, and they didn't just wander in and out. They realize and they start to weep. They start to weep and think, oh my word, what, are, what am I like? What's this community like? What, how are we living? How on earth has God not wiped us out for our sin? And they weep. It's called repentance. You don't have to weep to have repentance, but it's called repentance. It says in Romans 5, Paul writes this in Romans 5, it says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? This great gospel story. His forbearance and patience, not realizing that this kindness, this amazing gospel story is intended to lead you to repentance. I am aware of my sin, and unless someone dies for my sin, I'm going to die for it. That's a scary thing. A.W. Pink, a writer of, from earlier in the last century, said, a Christian who stopped repenting stopped growing. J.I. Packer's older guy now, I don't know if he's still around, I think he's maybe in his 80s if he is. Repentance is more than just sorrow. It's a change of heart and mind. A new life of denying self and serving the Savior as the king in self's place. There's a sense where repentance is, we don't talk about it. You think, oh, I went to church, I went to that church in the middle of August. And you know what they preach about? Sin and repentance. It's not because we've got this heavy thing about we want to scare people. But actually, there's a sense where repentance means actually you get rid of your stuff. It's actually a brilliant thing. I sometimes fall into patterns of behavior and thinking and I just get to the point where it starts to smell a bit in me and I think, God, what am I like? How have I become like this? And I have to say, God, I, I need repentance. I need the blood that was shed to cover my sin. I, I, I need you to forgive me. 
And repentance isn't some like deathly, sorrowful thing because Nehemiah says, don't weep. You don't have to weep. You don't have to weep when you've messed up. You don't have to weep and cry and that's the emotional state you're supposed to stay in. He says, no, there's a brilliant big story. There's a brilliant story. Philip Yancey in his book, a great book, says, what's amazing about grace? says, repentance is not proper behavior. Oh, well, I'll try harder to do better. Or even holiness, I've never made a mistake. But it's the doorway to grace. You come at that point where you say, God, I need you. And the word of God brings you to that point where you say, God, I need you. I need you. My sins will destroy me. I need you. And you come repenting. And Nehemiah says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We're going to finish in a moment with this. What does it, Paul say about the joy of Jesus? What do you get most joyful about? He says, for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. There's something about Jesus has joy when he forgives you. He says there's more joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And you think, what? That's the most exciting thing when we come to him and say, God, we're done. We're done with self-sufficiency. We're done with these things and we want you. We want to walk in you. And, and what does Nehemiah says? There's a joy of the Lord. There's strength in that. And then all the people went away. He says, go away. And all the people went away to drink, eat and drink. And we're going to do that in a minute now. And share their food. And celebrate with great joy because they now understood the truth that being made to known to them. God is the one who forgives. He's the one who saved. However messed up you've made, however poorly you've behaved, whatever has happened in your life, whatever things you think define you, whatever things that have crept in to be the core values, actually Jesus has come in and right at the middle he puts himself and he puts love and grace and says, come on. They understood the gospel of grace. Paul writes in Romans 5, as I finish, it says, For the sin, for by the sin of the one man, Adam, that I read that in Moses, death reigned. How much more will those who receive God's abundant, I love these words, abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life for the one man, Christ Jesus? It doesn't come through proper behavior or trying to be holy or trying to be religious. It comes because we say, I am hungry for Jesus. I'm hungry for the Passover lamb. I want to, I want to take him in his life. I want his blood to cover my sin. I want, I want to be taken out of slavery and brought into the goodness of his love. We're going to break bread now. Lord, we reflect on your amazing story. How we've enslaved, but you've come and died for us. You've come and set us free. You've come and covered our sin. You've atoned for us. Your blood has gone into that most holy place, and so we don't need to fear destructive power 
of sin. Lord, I thank you that your repentance, turning and saying you're the one that we want, releases amazing life. Lord, we don't need to weep and moan and groan and grieve because of our messed up ways. Lord, I thank you that you come and by your word, you say to us, you're forgiven, you're free, you're clean, you're loved, you're acceptable to me, you've got a purpose and a future. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Lord, we thank you that as we take bread and wine, we drink and celebrate your goodness to us. Lord Jesus. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.